The 10 principles really describe an alternative to dieting, this framework that both practitioners and the layperson alike can use to really move away from that cycle of, you know, being on a diet, off a diet, pursuing weight loss versus working towards body acceptance. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, where healthcare professionals and health-minded consumers are provided with practical and helpful nutrition information on current and trending topics from subject matter experts. My name is Mary Purdy, and I'm an integrative dietitian nutritionist based in Seattle, Washington. Our topic today is Ditching Diet Culture, a look at intuitive eating. And I'm super excited to introduce our special guest today, Kara Harbstreet. Kara is a registered dietitian, nationally recognized food and nutrition expert, and certified intuitive eating counselor based in Kansas City. She is the founder of Street Smart Nutrition, a private practice where she specializes in sports nutrition, intuitive eating, and supports clients in fearlessly creating nourishing meals. She is the published author of two cookbooks and the workbook, Healthy Eating for Life, an intuitive eating workbook to stop dieting forever. You may have also seen Kara on her social media channels where she discusses the benefits of intuitive eating and helps people rediscover the joy of eating without restriction or fear. Welcome, Kara. It's so great to meet you. Thank you so much for hosting me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Now, it's interesting that you describe yourself as a non-diet dietitian. Tell us what that means for you. Sure. So diet can be such a loaded term. I mean, my definition has always sort of been very vague and broad to include just the foods that someone eats. But as I actually got into working as a dietitian, I realized that the word diet has such a strong connotation and not always a positive one. And so by using the term non-diet, as opposed to even something, uh, I guess maybe a little more aggressive, like anti-diet is to just reestablish that this is a neutral and inclusive and welcoming space in my practice. And to also make it clear that while anti-diet is still very much a pillar of my practice and my brand, there's a clear distinction between anti-diet as an anti-diet culture and anti-dieter. So this is to hopefully uh, just share that, that welcoming attitude of letting people know that, you know, Hey, even if you've been on a diet, even if you're still currently dieting, this can be a, a message for you, or this can be a safe space for you because this is not something that is actively working against you, the dieter. It's this collective effort against diet culture. Hmm. So it's, it's inclusive, it's welcoming, it puts people at ease. And I'd love to understand your definition of what you just said, which is diet culture. What does that mean for you? Sure. Well, as a millennial, I, uh, I identify pretty strongly with the movie Mean Girls. And so one of the, the simple ways that I try to, uh, I guess, personify diet culture is to say that it's like that mean girl voice in your head. You know, it pops up when you're trying to decide what to eat or what to wear, or, you know, it's kind of what brings you to that second guessing place where you're questioning, okay, is this the right thing for me? Is this my best decision? What should I be doing? You know, all of these different things. And that diet culture pressure that we feel, it really stems from, from a lot of places, but it's very much rooted in this, this fear of fatness, this 
I guess, uh, health halo around the idea of, uh, you know, pursuing health. And what I find is that diet culture actually drives many people further away from either achieving or maintaining good health. And so uh, that's one of the primary reasons why I've aligned so strongly with this non-diet approach in my practice. Interesting. You know, and I imagine that all of us as practitioners, we have some level of experience with diet culture. And how would you say we can tap into that experience to either help or to hinder the work that we're doing with, with others. Yeah, I think it's really important of, of what you mentioned, you know, we can leverage that past experience to either improve our future work and continue to grow and develop in that space. And at the same time, it can also really be a hindrance to, to the way that we serve our clients and patients. I can say from my own experience, you know, diet culture showed up in a multitude of ways, but the fact remains that I live in a multi-privileged body and have never been on the receiving end of the type of weight stigma or weight discrimination that a lot of my clients have personally dealt with. So I prefer to answer this, you know, much more from that practitioner side, simply because I don't have the lived experience of being able to to share how my my experience with diet culture has played out. And so from a practitioner standpoint, what I can say is that as dietitians, the vast majority of us have been educated in a very weight centric paradigm, meaning that throughout our formal education, the entire premise of of the, the profession as a whole has really been rooted in the idea that weight loss can be the solution for any number of, of health issues, whether that's chronic disease, uh, you know, maybe more short-term concerns in a clinical setting. Uh, but time and time again, the, the intervention or the, the proposed solution involves some form of dieting or weight loss or restriction. And I think that's where we can really lean into that idea of how it hinders the work that we do with others. Because for many, many people out there, that advice is not only unhelpful, but also may not be real realistic or sustainable for them in the long term. Absolutely. And, and I am very intrigued by that term that you said, which is a multi-privileged experience in the body. That's a, a fascinating new new concept that I would imagine many of us would do well to, to think about as it reflects our own experience. So thank you for shedding light on that. And, and I would love to actually dive into this concept of intuitive eating as it relates to what you just said. Can, and perhaps we should set the stage by defining intuitive eating for the listeners. Yeah. So intuitive eating is, is not necessarily a new concept, but I think it is experiencing sort of this new time in the spotlight as more and more people have, you know, maybe perked their ears up when they hear the term intuitive eating, but it originated in the 1990s. It was developed by a pair of dietitians. So Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch came out with the first edition of the book around that time. And in the, you know, 25 years or so, almost 30 years since that time, it's evolved to this fourth edition, which is the most current current one. And it's really outlined by this framework of 10 principles. So the 10 principles really describe an alternative to dieting, you know, this, uh, this framework that both practitioners and the layperson alike can use to really move away from that cycle of, you know, being on a diet, off a diet, you know, pursuing weight loss versus working towards body acceptance. There's principles within it that address things like emotional eating and how that is a perennial 
type of thing that, that people will experience. It includes a principle around movement and really connecting with cues around hunger and fullness, which may be something that for many people, they've either numbed or ignored or disconnected from during their experiences with dieting. So that's a very open and, and high level definition of intuitive eating. But for anyone who's interested, I definitely recommend that text, which is uh, now in the fourth edition, which means that it has the most current research to back up this framework and practice. So that's always a great resource to start with. Agreed. That book has been transformational for not only patients of mine in the past, but also health practitioners who are working on a different type of approach to work on with their patients. And so I'm hearing it taps into helping people with their hunger cues. It, it, it looks at emotional eating. How does it differ from mindful eating, which we know is you know eating without distraction at slowing down, chewing, really tasting the food, tuning into our bodies, being present. What would you say is the biggest difference between mindful eating and intuitive eating? Yeah. So they are absolutely not one in the same. And I'm glad that you shared that, that recognition, because I think they're sometimes used very interchangeably and that can add to the confusion around what intuitive eating is and isn't. I actually have a blog post that expands on this idea a little bit further, but in essence, I will say that mindful eating is a part of intuitive eating, but it comes with the caveat that without totally embodying some of those other principles, it can revert into a form of dieting. And what I mean by that is just like you described, it's this concept of eating without a lot of distractions, taking that time to slow down and really practice mindfulness during an eating experience. But the reality is that it's sometimes next to impossible to really practice mindfulness in that sense. That's uh, sometimes a very aspirational form of mindfulness. And what I found is that for some people, they're still very much rooted in that all or nothing idea where they may internalize the the idea that every meal or every snack has to be a hundred percent mindful per that definition we just shared. And if not, then it's not worth trying or it's not worth doing. And instead, what I like to do is borrow some of the ideas of mindfulness, you know, that recognition and awareness or observation and acceptance and see how that can be incorporated in a more realistic manner. I think we have to be a little bit pragmatic and recognize that not only would it be a privilege to experience that type of mindful eating, whenever we wanted, but also know that from a sensory standpoint, that may not be the most comfortable setting for all people, depending on your past experiences with food, or if you have a history of trauma or sensory or audio challenges, you know, that could really be a pretty fraught situation. And I think we have to also be uh, inclusive of the idea that while someone may really gravitate towards that idea of mindful eating and aspire to try and use that as much as they can, for other people, that might be a really daunting thing to ask of them and might actually be in the way of truly helping them connect with what their bodies are trying to communicate. That is an amazing perspective. I, I so appreciate that. And it, it's taking it to a whole different level of, of trying to understand what someone's background and history and emotional state of mind is that isn't just as easy as like, oh, let me put the fork down and you know say a little mantra before I start my grape nuts or whatever it is. So getting out of that all or nothing mindset seems like it would be super freeing for people. 
So yes, mindful eating absolutely has some things that we can incorporate into an intuitive eating or non-diet approach. And one of the biggest benefits that I see there is this practice of uh, observation and acceptance or sort of noticing the, the thoughts that we have around food and eating without necessarily responding to them with another form of restriction. Many people and you know, myself included in the past have subscribed to this very binary and black and white all or nothing type of thinking. And while that can be helpful for some people, it actually creates this feeling of rebellion. You know, like I described earlier, it's this idea of, well, if I can't do it perfectly, then what's the point or why bother? And we can sort of get to this point of throwing our hands up in frustration. And with this, you know, it's, it's helpful to sometimes understand where those thoughts and beliefs stemmed from. In my work, a lot of times we're tracing things back to early childhood experiences. You know, what were your family meals like when you were growing up? What were some of those early introductory experiences around certain foods? Or what type of shame and guilt did you internalize through that, that pattern over the years? And that might give us a launch pad for what our next steps might look like in really supporting someone who is committed to that journey of healing their relationship with food. It's amazing how complex and how deep-rooted it is, this relationship with food that stems from a very, very early age, and how do we transform that experience into becoming a neutral observer, as you say, who's not judging the actions, but just noticing what's going on for them. And tell us a little bit about how you actually guide individuals around intuitive eating. Where, where does someone begin? What does that look like? Yes, I, I love the the term that you use as far as guidance because I think one of the biggest misconceptions about working with a dietitian is a lot of cautiousness around uh, this idea that dietitians are the food police or that we're going to dictate this new set of food rules or you know sort of our way or the highway type of approach and that actually could not be further from the truth at least in my practice you know, I can only speak for myself in this regard, but it's very much a partnership. I really do my best to ensure that new clients know from the jump that they are an active participant in this process and that the hierarchy of healthcare, meaning that I, as the practitioner, you know, would, would maybe normally be positioned in a more authoritative role than the patient or client is all but gone. You know, I, I really turn to my clients to listen and learn from their experiences and use their input to drive what our next mutual decisions are. I really have to listen to what their current lifestyle is like, what their strongest goals or concerns might be, and then try to find a way to hopefully merge that as seamlessly as we can into their current lifestyle. This means that we're being really mindful of things like their budget or the other responsibilities and things that fill up their daily life. I find that from a sustainable habit change standpoint, this is a really important piece of the process because where this is a stark contrast to dieting and diet culture is the recognition that you know, you don't have to do it perfectly to make a positive change. We're really reforming and remolding what that definition of health can look like. And while that is a very nuanced and complex way to approach it, we sometimes are able to hit some really interesting revelations within even just the first session. So, you know, ideally a lot of people come in thinking we're going to make progress by leaps and bounds, but I'm also very transparent with them in the fact that this could be a months or even years long process. And we're we're not going to rebuild Rome in a day. 
Absolutely. And I think it's great for healthcare practitioners and consumers out there to understand that that idea of a mutual partnership with your healthcare provider is such an incredible way to create a roadmap for success and and, and understanding of the process. So I, I also have seen on social media, because I follow you, it seems like you are actually practicing intuitive eating yourself. So I, I'm curious what drove your interest in implementing intuitive eating in your own life and in your practice. Sure. I'd love to speak on that. And and before I get into my experience with it, I'd love to also make mention of the fact that having that type of relationship with your healthcare provider is a huge luxury in today's world. So this ties into the social media piece of it, because I want to let listeners know that while it may not seem like an option for you to work directly one-on-one with a dietitian in the manner that I just described, there's a host of other resources that may be available at either a free or discounted cost to hopefully make this more accessible. Social media is a, a platform that has its its pros and cons, but one of the benefits is that there's a really vibrant intuitive eating and non-diet community where many people are sharing stories about their recovery or sharing resources that might otherwise not be available based on either your location or uh, or financial burdens. So wanted to, to make note of that. And to change gears just a little bit and, and mention how I came around to it, My background is actually as an athlete. So throughout high school and college, I played competitive volleyball and then went on to compete in track and field at the collegiate level. And following my, I guess, early retirement from that sport, I I got really interested in running. And so sports nutrition was always uh, a passion of mine and an activity that I really enjoyed. Uh, But at the same time, in hindsight, I recognized that that was actually part of my own disorder around movement and body image and nutrition. And so diet culture manifested in a lot of different ways. I had a a brief stint as uh, a pseudo vegetarian, meaning that I fell into a plant-based eating pattern that was driven more by misinformation and fear and restriction versus any other type of motivation. And as a result was relatively short lived by the time that I actually started addressing some of my own deep rooted beliefs around food and health. I also think that my background as an athlete exposed me to maybe some messaging around body image and sport that was likely not the most helpful way uh, to then transition into a career as a dietitian. So when I actually graduated from my internship and and began practicing as a dietitian, I myself was still very much rooted in that weight-centric type of practice. I was working in a setting for corporate wellness, and we were doing a lot of wellness programming for our employees in the community, and much of it centered around weight loss challenges or weight loss counseling. And what I kept bumping up against through different experiences in that setting was that while this cookie cutter type of advice that I had been trained in might work in some cases, that was actually quite rare. And more often than not, what I was hearing from participants in our programs was that this was a short-lived solution and therefore was not really a solution at all. It was just sort of delaying the inevitable, which is that they may temporarily lose weight, but then experience that rebound weight gain and sort of find themselves back at square one. And this was adding a ton of frustration, uh, you know, just a lot of, I guess, disenchantment with what this idea of what health could be for them. And as a result, I really started looking for an alternative while still grasping at at what that could be. At the time, 
I did not have any awareness about intuitive eating or health at every size approach. And it was really only through networking with some colleagues of mine that I was first exposed to that idea. And once I could better articulate why I was feeling so frustrated from the practitioner side of things, that's when I really realized like, Hey, this is that alternative I've been looking for and pretty much have not looked back since. Hmm. And it sounds like health became the focus and the, and the goal as opposed to weight loss. And, and you mentioned the term health at every size, which is also referred to as the acronym HAZE, and that's gained a huge amount of popularity. I would love for you to explain to us what the HAZE approach is and why you feel it's important for healthcare professionals to consider using this approach in their practices. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think in, in my ideal world, every provider would be haze informed and trauma informed and, and that's a ways off. But one of the best resources that I can direct to for this is the ASDA website. So that's the association for size, diversity and health. And they have a really clear cut definition of what this haze approach looks like. So as you mentioned, that's the acronym for health at every size. And there are five principles that fall under this and they are weight inclusivity, health enhancement, eating for well-being, respectful care, and life-enhancing movement. And I know we don't have time to take a deep dive into each of those principles the way we might want to, uh, but just to summarize this, I really try to make it clear that health at every size is not synonymous with healthy at any size. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions around what this this approach entails. And many people confuse it for this idea that anybody at any size is automatically healthy. And I really want to counter that by reminding folks that this is health at every size, meaning that it is possible for anyone at any size to pursue health through healthful behaviors, which are described in more detail in those five principles that I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, but this whole model exists because there's a longstanding prejudice against extra weight and fatness and the idea that this contributes to poor health or morbidity and mortality and, and really turns to the research around this uh, association or correlation between size and these negative health outcomes. And so this approach of health at every size really removes weight from the equation to say, how can we support someone in pursuing or enhancing their health if that's a personal value that they hold and do that in a way that does not send them into a diet or promote disordered eating or exacerbate an existing eating disorder. Uh, these are all things that I sometimes, you know, will remind people, you know, this allows people to live in their full humanity. So if it is challenging to think of the concept health at every size, is it possible for you to imagine treating someone as a human at every size and recognize that they have their own unique preferences, needs, and lifestyles? And we as health providers can support that through a number of different ways that have absolutely nothing to do with what the number on the scale says. That's just an excellent explanation. And I think that makes it really clear that the Hayes approach is not necessarily saying that they don't see obesity as a health risk, but, but that there is opportunity for health and health pursuits, no matter what size, shape, background you are. Anything else that, that would be helpful to, to shed light on or bust myths around as it relates to those who may feel like the Hayes approach is somehow diminishing the impact that obesity is having on health? 
Yeah, I want to make it really clear that I, as a, a person in a non-fat body, am not the foremost expert on this. So I would really encourage folks to look into resources from ASDA. Uh, there's many, many other providers and uh, active voices in this space that can speak from not only a firsthand experience, but are actually very entrenched in this work of promoting weight inclusivity in healthcare. So that's the first piece that I, I would add. But I think from my experience, the, the most contention around this concept of health at every size has stemmed from the idea that we have this body of evidence in the weight science that says being in a bigger body is bad for your health. You know, there are worse outcomes. Here's all this data that we can point to. And there's a few things that stick out to that for me when I try to think critically about the state of the research and, and what it tells us. First, as a dietitian, I want to say that I, I 100% support evidence-based practice but that's the full extent of evidence-based practice. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes we latch on to the idea that quote unquote evidence-based practice is the application of what we know the research says about whatever. In this case, you know, we're talking about health and its connection or with weight and its connection with health. I think what many people conveniently gloss over or, or discount is the fact that evidence-based practice actually has two other pillars, one of which is the clinical experience of the practitioner, which goes back to what I described in my early days as a dietitian, working in that setting and recognizing that a weight-centric approach is truly unhelpful, but then also the personal preferences of a patient or client which again speaks to that humanity aspect of it and recognizing that a patient is an active participant in the pursuit of health and that we as providers are not all knowing. We cannot dictate from this point of, of only one right way to pursue and achieve health. Now, the second and follow-up piece to that is also the acknowledgement that what informs evidence-based practice is a body of research that may be inherently flawed, limited, or incomplete. As dietitians, we would love to be able to design and execute clinical trials and studies that would answer all the things that we have questions about, but ethically, we simply can't do that. Not only might it be ethically impossible, but it would also take an extremely high amount of money, time, and patience to, to arrive at that. So we have to sometimes fill in the gaps and connect the dots that aren't always clearly visible. We also know that there is a high degree of internalized fat phobia and anti-fat bias that informs academia and the way that research studies are designed. And so we have to take the available evidence with a grain of salt and remember that while we may try to control for as many factors as possible, the negative and harmful impacts of weight stigma are one of the, the variables that is nearly impossible to control for and very rarely is mentioned in some of these hallmark studies that uh, might make an association or a correlation between weight and health. Yes. And thank you for emphasizing the value and role that what we call evidence-based practice has on the discussion and experience between the practitioner and the patient, because so much of our experience and ability to work with a patient relies on the thousands of patients that we've seen beforehand. So it's really helpful to tap into that because we can never be sure that the research is going to completely support uh, a theory um, if it's not done in a complete isolation. And and you mentioned a lot of uh, patients and, and the role that they play in their own health journey. I'm curious if you have a story that helps us to understand the role that intuitive eating or health at every size has played in a patient journey. 
Yes, this can play out in a number of different ways. But one of the the stories that always comes to mind when someone asks this question is a woman that I worked with fairly early in my private practice journey. Uh, She was in her early 60s, newly retired from being a teacher for many, many years. And she had recently been diagnosed with diabetes. And at the time that we first started working together, you know, she was very sporadic with checking her blood sugar. Uh, There were frequent episodes of binge eating, particularly very sweet things, you know, very carb rich types of foods. And that would be followed by this, this very intense and distressing feeling of guilt and shame because for so many of us, we've always been told, you know, for, for diabetes, you know, you've got to watch your carbs, you've got to watch your carbs, you know, all of the rest. And from her healthcare side of things, you know, the team that she had been working with was consistently recommending that she pursue weight loss. Now in her everyday life, you know, she was also interested in working up to a 5k distance and beyond. She had recently, uh, you know, reconnected with her daughter and they had a shared interest in doing these five Ks together. And so from a, a movement and exercise standpoint, there was a little bit of sports nutrition involved because she had had no prior support to what does it mean like to, to hydrate well in hot weather, or what can I do, uh, to aid my body as I recover from these longer walks and runs, uh, especially as she was aging she really wanted to prioritize uh, healthy movement and consistent movement. Now, where this uh, work that we did together was in stark contrast to what she was hearing from her healthcare side of things, I never asked her to weigh, I never asked her to, uh, you know, closely monitor or diligently track her food or carbs. We simply started by asking, what types of foods do you enjoy? Why do you feel compelled to binge eat on certain foods as opposed to others? And where are maybe the areas that you're not allowing yourself permission to regularly enjoy those foods? If you're not including uh, some of these things that you feel temptations or cravings for, that self-discipline or that ability to avoid them or, or resist is a finite resource. So it's really just a matter of when that resiliency finally fades that the barn doors kind of fly open and we, we experience that distress of eating really large amounts of those foods we've been trying to avoid. We also talked about some health promoting behaviors, like regularly monitoring her blood sugars. Uh, we got to a point where she was consistently testing in the morning as well as before and after some of the other meals throughout her day. So all of these things, as I mentioned before, in, in that intro to the health at every size approach, you know, all of these interventions that we worked on and these new goals that we set were informed by her lifestyle and what felt realistic and practical, as well as the fact that none of them had anything to do with stepping on a scale and chasing after weight loss. I was able to support her in finding a health at every size informed trainer in the area who could get her set up with a walking plan to gradually increase that endurance. And then as we started to finish up our time of working together, she and her daughter had actually planned uh, a cruise that involved a 5k every day for the course of a week. And they were really excited excited and looking forward to that. So again, this is just showcasing the, the, one of the many ways that this approach can be put into practice in a way that doesn't result in what you might expect to see, which is perfect blood sugar monitoring or a a lower BMI or a smaller body, but was ultimately a more sustainable approach and enhanced her overhaul lifestyle and the enjoyment that she was able to experience from food. 
That's a wonderful story and so amazing that she was able to get this completely different experience with an interaction with you that maybe she hadn't had with other healthcare providers who hadn't seen her for more than just the number on the scale. And when we talk about size and the number on the scale, you know, different body shapes and sizes are perceived differently across various cultures. So we, we need to talk about the cultural component of this. How does that fit into the conversation of, of around health at every size? Yes, this absolutely fits in in a, a really strong way because so much of our beliefs around anti-fatness stem from a preference of a beauty standard that is rooted in anti-blackness. And this is another thing that's not often shared in certain spaces that are talking about health at every size. So I want to make it really clear that the origins of diet culture are, again, very much rooted in this cultural type of approach that prioritizes one body type or one beauty standard. And then that becomes the default that everyone else is then compared against. And so this cultural conversation is an essential piece of it because it brings not only recognition that other cultures and unique heritages and backgrounds are an important piece of the health conversation, but also diminishes this default and lets people know that your body is not wrong. Your body is not bad. Your body is not inherently unhealthy because it does not align with this narrow standard of what health and beauty looks like. I find that for my, my clients who identify as people of color, they really resonate with this because especially for those who are maybe second generation or the children of immigrants, they're caught between two worlds where their cultural beauty norms or cuisines may align in, in very nostalgic, very familiar and comforting ways. Yet when that is applied against a Western standard of, of what health looks like, they find it to be at odds and therefore internalize more of that guilt and shame around not only what their body physically looks like, but also some of those really significant cultural practices that have informed how their families have interacted and, and how that dynamic plays out. So I think, again, when we consider the different body shapes and sizes, we have to think, why are we so accepting of the idea that someone could be naturally thin, yet so unaccepting of the idea that someone could be naturally fat? I also want to make it really clear that I use the term fat as a neutral descriptor. However, I know for many listeners, this may not be a term that they're comfortable using. So I just want to add that disclaimer as well. Thank you. And it's very clear that that cultural component is such an essential part of this conversation and goes back to really working with the patient or the client and having those conversations that go a little bit deeper. And and if someone out there is listening, whether they are a health care practitioner or just a health-minded consumer, what might be some signs to look for that, that might indicate that intuitive eating or the haze approach might really be a great thing to consider for them? Yes. I love that you mentioned, you know, something to consider. I, I want to also be very clear that this is not positioned as the only way or, or the one right way, but for so many people who are seeking an alternative, it's out there. And it, it's like you mentioned before, this, this could be refreshing as an alternative to what they've previously experienced. So some of the, the red flags that go up for me are signs of, of distress or anxiety or overwhelm when it comes to maintaining what might otherwise be healthy habits. And this is where the nuance comes in because the waters can be very murky when it comes to distinguishing what is distressing and disordered for one person 
what is sustainable and health promoting for another? I can use one example of meal planning or preparing foods ahead of time to eat throughout the week. You know, for some folks, they do this as an act of self-care. It's because they value uh, simplicity or convenience and they want to minimize chaos in the kitchen in the future. And so their current self is looking out for their future self by saying, hey, I'm going to prep some veggies ahead of time. I might cook off some grains or proteins and give myself some options for when I hit a really busy night this week. Now, on the other hand, someone could also adhere to a very rigid, very limited type of meal plan where they feel this pressure to eat perfectly, or they feel high degrees of distress or anxiety if they deviate from that plan or otherwise don't know the nutrition content of some foods. For example, if they're at a restaurant or they can't look up the menu ahead of time. And so that degree of rigidity is maybe a sign that, hey, could there be more flexibility? Could there be a way to adapt this approach in a way that feels better for you? It's a really uh, a murky a murky puddle to sort of wade through. But as I mentioned before, what might be a, a sustainable or health promoting behavior for one person could actually turn into something that's very disordered or compulsive you know, obsessive or even pathological for someone else. And that's where we bridge into the field of, you know, this, this is looking like orthorexia. This is looking like an unhealthy obsession or preoccupation with healthy eating, which is not to say that we can't hold health as a value or that we should be shamed or, or criticized for wanting to maintain good health. It's simply to point out that when you reach that degree of anxiety around maintaining health, there might be a, a need for a deeper dive into that relationship with food and, and eating. And before we hop off here, Kara, you mentioned an organization up front that you said could be a great resource. Can you repeat that again and let us know any other resources that you think might be helpful for folks? Oh, I'd be happy to. Yes. Yeah, so ASDA is the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, and they're a membership-based organization uh, that is really committed to dismantling these weight-centered policies and practices. So they have a multifaceted approach, but one of the pieces is education. So on their website, you can access things like webinars, uh, an entire HAYS or Health at Every Size curriculum, which can be particularly helpful for uh, providers and clinicians. And then they also do a lot of advocacy work. So again, there's various settings that, uh, you know, weight stigma or weight discrimination shows up. I would say it's virtually baked into almost every system and institution that we operate in. And so their advocacy work is an important piece of that, uh, as well as just connecting with like-minded uh, folks. So that might be on the healthcare side of things again, for practitioners or clinicians, uh, as well as just the community as a whole, who, who really ascribes to that, uh, health at every size approach. Wonderful. And We'll be sure to put that in the show notes so that people can easily click on some of those links. Well, this has been a truly enlightening conversation, Kara, and I would imagine some of our listeners out there might just experience a bit of a transformation after uh, listening to what you have to say. So thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been a truly extraordinary conversation. Yes. Thanks again for hosting me. I appreciate the opportunity to share more and connect with your audience. And I'm happy to, to stay connected or be available if questions should come up afterwards. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. I know our listeners will too. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Did you know that Orgain has a healthcare ambassador program? 
If you're a credentialed healthcare professional, request an account today to gain immediate access to product samples sent to your practice and directly to patients, shareable coupons, and free continuing education opportunities, now conveniently accessible in the new easy-to-use Orgain Healthcare app. As an Orgain ambassador to myself, I've used the app, which is really user-friendly, and watched several webinars, which I thought were excellent learning opportunities. Visit healthcare.orgain.com or download the new Orgain Healthcare app to request a welcome kit and get access to these helpful resources.